Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. This morning, as we come to Exodus chapter 8, we come to something I'm going to do a little bit different than how we normally go through the scriptures on a Sunday morning. Normally, I'm going verse by verse through every sentence of a chapter. And that's just the normal practice, and I feel entirely good about doing that. But occasionally, we come to a section of Scripture, and this is going to happen a couple times as we make our way through the book of Exodus, where I believe it's just going to be better for us to take more of an overview. And so I hope I don't offend anybody here this morning, but we're going to take a look at chapters 8, 9, and 10 of the book of Exodus. I hope you got nothing going on for the next couple hours. No, actually, I'm not going to go verse by verse through the text. I'm just trusting that you guys have read it all ahead of time and you're ready to go with this. Well, it's really good if you can do that. But if you haven't, just open up your Bible or turn it on and turn it over, click it over to the section, Exodus chapter 8. Have an overview as I give you some of the highlights through this and give you the general flow And then point out a few things that I think that the Spirit of God wants to say to us as a congregation from these particular chapters. You see, in the setting of the book of Exodus, the plagues that came upon Egypt were like the, well, were were like the, the, the trigger that got Pharaoh to let go of the people of Israel. They needed some kind of release, some kind of key to set them free. And Pharaoh's heart was so hard that he wouldn't let go of them. You know, the children of Israel had been in the land of Egypt for some 400 years. And not all of those years were lived in slavery, but many of them were. Some people estimate 150. Some people estimate 250. I don't know exactly how many. But for several generations, the children of Israel lived in Egypt as slaves. But that was never God's ultimate destination for them. God always desired to bring them back into the land of Canaan, the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob generations before. So this is the goal. Get them out of Egypt. Get them out from under Pharaoh's domination. Bring them through the wilderness and bring them into the promised land. God wasn't just about improving their situation in Egypt. They had to get out of there. They had to be set free. And in order for Pharaoh to do that, God had to bring these plagues down upon Egypt. So, if I could put it to you just in these terms, the story of Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the story of nine plagues. Now, that's not all of the plagues. Actually, one of the plagues starts in chapter 7. And the last plague, which we're not going to talk about this morning, is the terrible plague upon the firstborn. We'll talk about that next week. But again, Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the story of nine plagues. Do you remember that first plague that came upon them? It was the plague of the Nile turning to blood. Aaron stretched out his rod over the Nile River. And as he struck it, God miraculously made the river, the waters of the River Nile turn to blood and become undrinkable for that nation or kingdom of Egypt that relied upon the Nile River. Well, the magicians and the enchanters of Egypt imitated this plague. But all they did was make more undrinkable water. 
But even that sort of lame miracle was enough to give Pharaoh an excuse to reject God. And this exposed the lie behind some of the great Egyptian deities. Should I remind you that the Egyptians were sort of animists or polytheists? They worshipped dozens of gods, a god for this and a god for that and a god for the other thing. They needed to realize that all of those gods were false. And the true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the one and only living God, that he was the true God. And all those other gods are just simply figments of somebody's imagination. So when the Egyptians relied on somebody like Kunum, the god of the river Nile, to protect them, God said, forget it. Kunum can't do anything for you. He's a figment of your imagination. When I want the Nile to turn to blood, my servants Moses and Aaron are going to strike it and it's going to happen. Forget about Kunum. That's what God showed in Exodus chapter 7. Then as we come into Exodus chapter 8, the first plague that comes along is the plague of frogs. Now, wouldn't you know it? The Egyptians worshipped a frog goddess because frogs multiply so rapidly. It was sort of a god of reproduction and fertility. So God sent them lots of frogs. So many so that the land was filled with them. Can you imagine the croaking in the night? Now, the magicians and the sorcerers of Egypt said, Pharaoh, don't worry about that. This isn't the hand of God. We can do the same thing. So what did the magicians and enchanters of Egypt do? Did they cast some spell and make all the frogs disappear? No. They did some sort of enchantment and made more frogs come. That's not exactly fixing the problem. But again, it was enough to give Pharaoh an excuse to not believe. And so it got so bad that Pharaoh begged Moses to pray to God to take away the frogs. Moses did just that, and all the frogs died. I love what the text says. It tells us that all the frogs stank. I can only imagine mountains of rotting frogs and how that must smell. But notice, after it all, Exodus chapter 8, verse 15 tells us this, that when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Nile turns to blood, no repentance. Frogs upon the land, no repentance. What comes next? Well, Exodus chapter 8 tells us that a plague of lice came upon the people of Egypt. The dust of the ground became lice that afflicted both men and animals. Now, I say lice, and to tell you the truth, the ancient Hebrew word is somewhat imprecise. It could have been lice, it could have been gnats, it could have been mosquitoes. We don't know exactly, but whatever it was, it was very unpleasant. And here the Egyptians, excuse me, the magicians and the enchanters of Egypt came once again and said, no problem, Pharaoh, we'll show you how to do this. But they couldn't imitate this plague. There was clearly a limit to their power. They even told Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But do you think Pharaoh listened? Do you think Pharaoh said, oh, no, I understand that, that, that I can't be worshiping these lame gods of Egypt any longer. Nope, Pharaoh didn't listen, and he hardened his heart. Ladies and gentlemen, that plague of the lice, or whatever they were exactly, that plague struck at the heart of all the Egyptian worship system, especially upon their priests. The Egyptian priesthood was extremely careful about hygiene and ritual cleansing. 
and an infestation of lice made all the Egyptian priests unable to perform their supposedly sacred duties. Well, what did God send next? Again, it's in Exodus chapter 8. He sent swarms, swarms of some kind of insect. Again, the Hebrew doesn't tell us, so it's impossible to know exactly what kind of insect it was. Some people say it was this kind of fly or this kind of biting fly. We don't know exactly, no. But some swarm came upon Egypt, and in this plague, God made a distinction. He spared the land of Goshen. Goshen was that area of Egypt where a majority of the Israelites lived. And in that particular area, God said, no plague there. I'm going to make a distinction between my people and the Egyptians. I'm going to make a difference between them. And like the previous plague, this one struck at the priests of Egypt and their worship of the false Egyptian gods. It says this in Exodus 8.24, that the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Did Pharaoh repent? No way. Next plague, a disease upon the livestock of Egypt. Now, can you see how the ante gets raised each time? You see, all the other plagues were very unpleasant. But as far as we know, nobody died. Nobody died, died when the land, when the Nile was turned to blood. And nobody died when the land was infested with frogs. And nobody died from the lice or from the swarms. But now, Exodus chapter 9 tells that there was some kind of anthrax-type disease upon the cattle, the horses, the donkeys, the oxen, and the sheep of Egypt. And in all of this, none of the animals that belonged to the people of Israel died. But many, many of the Egyptian livestock did. Now, Pharaoh investigated. And this is what he came to learn. He came to learn that not one of the Israelite animals was dead, yet he refused to repent. And wouldn't you just know it? The Egyptians had a mother goddess with horns to associate her with the sacred cow. Her name was Hathor. And cattle were considered sacred by the Egyptians. So what does God do? He plagues the cattle. He shows the ridiculousness of their pagan gods. Was that plague enough? Nope. Bring them on. Chapter 9, the next plague that comes along is the plague of boils. Then God commanded Moses and Aaron to take handfuls of ash from a furnace and to throw them up in the air. And through that, God struck the Egyptians with boils that came upon both men and animals throughout the whole kingdom of Egypt. And this was a rebuke to the Egyptian god Imhotep, the supposed god of medicine. It showed that he was in reality nothing. And it struck the magicians of Egypt so hard that they even begged Pharaoh to give in, but he would not. And God hardened his heart even more. Next plague, hail came upon them. This is in Exodus chapter 9 as well. You see, after offering Pharaoh another opportunity to repent, God sent something strange. The Bible describes it as hail mixed with fire. I don't know what that was. But he warned them to take cover before he sent it, but he sent it. And this killer hail brought destruction all over Egypt. Now, this rebuked their trust in many of the Egyptian gods, but in particular, Nut, the sky goddess. Was that enough? No. Next came a plague of locusts. 
Now we're into Exodus chapter 10. After another false repentance by Pharaoh, locusts came upon the land and they ate everything, just as such swarms of locusts do. The the Egyptians thought that their God, Set, would protect their crops, but the Lord showed that Set was nothing. He was the figment of the imagination. And so Pharaoh made a show of repentance again, and God sent a wind to throw the blow, the locusts into the sea. But Pharaoh's repentance was false, and nothing changed. Finally, or at least for our purposes, the actual final plague we'll talk about next week. But in our list, through Exodus chapter 10, the last plague was a plague of darkness. And friends, this was a bizarre plague. God sent a darkness upon the land of Egypt. It was as if somebody blotted out the sun. But ladies and gentlemen, it was more than that. Because the biblical text tells us that this was a darkness that could be felt. Isn't that strange? There was something tangible and spiritual about the properties of this darkness. And this showed that the Lord God of Israel was the real God, the real God of the sun, the real God of the light, not Ra, as the Egyptians supposed. And ladies and gentlemen, after all these nine plagues, one plague remained far worse than any of the previous. You could say that the ten of them collectively were a truly complete number. Ten plagues, later on, ten commandments. Sort of a completion of numbers. But surely, if we're going to take a look at Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's the story of the plagues. But that's not all it is. As I made some reference to as well, it's also the story of God's domination. I want you to pay special attention to Exodus chapter 9, verses 14 and 16. This is what God said to Pharaoh through Moses. Exodus 9, verses 14 and 16. At this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For this purpose I have raised you up. Now in verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. I think that this message from God to Pharaoh through Moses explains what God did in at least three ways. First, I want you to look at the first phrase I want to highlight from Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. He says, there is none like me in all the earth. Pharaoh, you want to know why I'm bringing these plagues? So that you'll know that there is no one like me. In other words, God did this to humiliate the supposed gods of Egypt and all their worship. Oh yeah, Pharaoh, I know you worship these dozens of gods. And maybe you think that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's just another one of these gods. Could you blame Pharaoh for thinking that? It would almost be a logical reaction. Well, sure, they have their gods and they have their gods. And Yahweh, he's just another one of those gods. Yahweh says, no, Pharaoh, I'm going to school you. I'm going to show you that I'm greater than the god Knum, the guardian of the isle. I'm greater than the goddess Heket, the frog-like goddess of fertility. I'm greater than the goddess Hathor, the cow-like mother goddess. I'm greater than the god Imhotep, the god of medicine. I'm greater than Nut, the sky goddess. I'm greater than Set, the protector of crops. 
I'm greater than Ra, the sun god. And I'm greater than your whole lame Egyptian system of worship because I can stop all the worship of the Egyptian priest just by sending a bunch of lice or flies. Pharaoh, your gods are nothing. They're idols and you should put them away. Look to Yahweh, the one true and living God. I don't blame somebody for listening to this and say, well, okay, well said, pastor, whatever, fine. It's a nice historical lesson for what happened in the days of Egypt. And I suppose uh, Pharaoh got the message, didn't he? Let's forget about Pharaoh just for a moment. I want to know if you get the message. Because are you well aware of the fact that idol making did not end with Pharaoh? Idol making and idol worship did not end with ancient cultures. That there are idolaters all over the globe today. And I'm not just talking about people who make statues and bow down to them. Because the worst idols are not personified by a statue that somebody may offer some sacrifice to. The worst idols are the ones that we hold deep in our heart. Success, romance, pleasure, your own will. Idols, idols, idols. Cannot all these things be? Ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you this as well, that sometimes it's the very best things in life that become the most stubborn idols. There are many things that are good and perfect gifts from God that he gives to you and he wants you to enjoy, but rather there's something, something within us that wants to take those good gifts from God and exalt them to an untoward place and make them idols in our life. I wouldn't be surprised if right now God's speaking to some people across this room about idolatry in their life. Yes, you hold on something in your life, and it's a good thing. Maybe it's a gift from God, but you've taken that gift from God, and you've made an idol out of it. Let me tell you something. God has an active interest in tearing down our idols. He did it for the Egyptians, and he'll do it in your life. Are you bold enough to pray a prayer? This is a guts. I'll admit, this is a gutsy prayer to pray. I don't want you just automatic. I want you to think about it before you would pray this prayer. Here's the prayer. God, destroy every idol in my life. That's gutsy, isn't it? But isn't it worth it? Do you, do you really want to live your life and pass from this life into eternity? with maybe trust in a completely false conception of God or some idol that you've established in your own life. God shows he's greater than any idol. That's one aspect. But if we go back to Genesis 9.14, I think there's another aspect. Actually, this is in uh, 9.16, where the second phrase I want to highlight is where God says to Pharaoh that I may show my power in you. Why did God do this? God did this to humble the proud Pharaoh. And to me, there's nothing that exemplifies the pride of Pharaoh more than his desire to make a deal with God. Really, if you look through Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10, you see in several instances, Pharaoh trying to make a deal. After the plague of the swarm, Pharaoh said this to Moses. Well, look. Why don't I give you guys a few days off of your slavery? You stay in Egypt. You can sacrifice unto the Lord and everything will be great. Now, is that what Moses and the Lord asked for? No. What was the request of Moses and the Lord? Let my people go. We're leaving here. What does Pharaoh say? I'll give you a few days off. How does that sound? 
Do you see what Pharaoh's doing? He's negotiating with God. God, let's make a deal. You're a hard bargainer, but I think I got a deal for you. What do you think God's response was to Pharaoh's suggestion? I'll give you a few days off. God said no. So later on, after the plague of locusts, Pharaoh says, oh, God, you are a strong bargainer. Wow, I've really got to come to the table prepared for this one. So here's what I'm going to do. This time I'm offering this. And it's almost like he slides the offer across the table. Here's the table, God. Uh, The offer, God. I will allow all the men to leave Egypt to worship God. They can do that. But but leave the women, leave the children behind, and, and leave all your goods. What do you think God said to that response? No. You're right. You think I'm negotiating with you? When the Lord God comes and says, let my people go, you don't negotiate. It's a yes or no proposition. Finally, after the plague of darkness, Pharaoh was in negotiating mode once again. And he said, okay, okay, okay. Here's what I'll do for you. I'll let everybody go. All the men, all the women, all the children. But you know what? Leave your livestock behind. Remember, all the livestock was killed among the Egyptians. So Pharaoh says, we need some livestock here in Egypt. Leave all your livestock behind, and then I'll let you go. And Moses' response to this last attempt to make a deal represents God's attitude towards every time Pharaoh tried to negotiate. This is what Moses said. It's in Exodus chapter 10, verse 26. Not a hoof shall be left behind. You want us to keep the cattle here? What are you joking? We're not leaving a single hoof behind. Every hoof is coming with us. The Lord God and the prophet Moses who represented him was absolutely unwilling to compromise on any of these points. God wanted deliverance for all of Israel and for all that belonged to Israel and was not willing to deal or negotiate on this point. Say, my, that's a quaint thing. Isn't that interesting that happened back there? No, no, no. Let me bring this home to you and to I. Don't we try to negotiate with God? Okay, God, I'll give you this. Wow, you're a tough bargainer. I'll give you this, but I'll keep back that. I'll surrender this, but I'll hold back that. Yes, Lord, boy, I I tell you, I'll give you more than I did last time. But, boy, you're a tough bargainer, God. Do you realize What an insult it is to the Lord to even bargain with him. Our terms aren't bargaining with God. It's surrender. And sometimes we just need to hear that from the Lord. Stop bargaining with me. Stop trying to cut a deal. Simply surrender to me. That was God's word to Pharaoh and to, as God says to you and to I, not a hoof shall be left behind. Here's the problem. Some of us kind of believe that this whole purpose of the work that God wants to do in our life is that somehow we add God to our life. I have my life, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations. And isn't it great? God comes along and is going to help me fulfill all that. Instead, we understand that, no, no, no. We die to our life and we live his life instead. That's what God wants. This total revolution in us, body, soul, and spirit. And this is what God was laying out to Pharaoh, and it's what he lays out to us as well. Then next, there's a third aspect to it. Again, we're back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. I want you to see the third phrase in all of that. God said to Pharaoh through Moses, that my name would be declared in all the earth. God did all these plagues, 
All this carnage that we see in Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10, so that God would teach the Egyptians and indeed the whole world. You know, he taught the Israelites himself something great through that. The lesson was for Israel itself, because God said that he did this. Look at it in Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. God said he did this so that you may tell it in the hearing of your son and your son's son, the mighty things I have done in Egypt. For generations to come, they were to remember what God did to the supposed gods of Egypt in bringing them out of slavery. Yes, God glorified himself among the Israelites. But that wasn't all. That lesson went far beyond Israel and far beyond Egypt. More than 400 years after this. I'm going to say it again. More than 400 years after this, the Philistines were talking about what God did with the plagues of Egypt. Listen, I'm not lying. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8 says this. It's an awkward reference that the Philistines made to the God of Israel. They said, Woe to us who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. 400 years after this, God was still famous for what he did in the plagues of Egypt. And that's another reason why God did this. But then obviously there's another thing. This message especially hit Egypt. Don't you see God confronting not only Pharaoh, but all of the Egyptians saying, why are you trusting in Ra? Why are you trusting in Heketh? Why are you trusting in Hathor or Osiris or, or, or any of these other pagan gods? Don't trust in them. They're nothing. I am Yahweh. And listen, you want to know the good news? Many Egyptians listened because when Israel left Egypt, by the way, that's going to happen in just a couple of chapters, Exodus chapter 12, When Israel left Egypt, it says, I'll read to you Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. Then the children of Israel journeyed about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went with them also and flocks and herd. Mixed multitudes, you know what that means? Many Egyptians. Many Egyptians said, forget it. I don't want to serve these lame loser gods any longer. I'm going with the Israelites. I've seen how dumb my gods are. I've seen how stupid it is to have gods that I have to support. I want a God that will support me. And that's what they did in following the Lord God Yahweh. So, friends, you see, it's Exodus 8, 9, and 10, the story of the plagues, the story of God's domination. That's a pretty big story. Then there's a third story, and this will be the last main point that I get to. Last main point. There's going to be smaller points. I don't want to give anybody unrealistic hope that I'm wrapping it up. The last main point is that this is the story of false repentance. As I read through Exodus chapters 8, 9, and 10, I was blown away to see the repeated false repentance of Pharaoh. You see, after the swarm plague, Pharaoh had a pray-for-me moment But it was all forgotten once the crisis was over. And then after the plague of hail, Pharaoh said this. Look at these words from Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Excuse me, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Just look at that statement for a moment. Isn't that a pretty good statement of repentance? 
If somebody came up to me uh, for prayer after service and they looked me in the eye and said, I have sinned this time, the Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. I'd say, hot dog, here's somebody repenting. No, but Pharaoh said the words that there was something lacking in the life and the heart. Because there was another episode of false repentance after this, after the plague of locusts. And look at what Pharaoh said this time. It's in Exodus chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says this, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God. And you look at that on paper and you go, what an amazing, wonderful display of repentance. Good job, Pharaoh. Good job of repenting. I'll tell you the truth. In this, Pharaoh merely became the founder of the I Have Sinned Club. Never heard of the I Have Sinned Club? Depending on how you count, it's a club with eight or nine members in the Bible. Now, of course, it has a lot more members. Actually, aren't we all members of the I Have Sin Club? But what I'm just trying to say is that if you go through the Bible, you will find eight or nine individuals, depending on how you count, who said those precise words, I have sinned. And I'll tell you something startling. Five of those were insincere and false in their repentance. Pharaoh said it, but he was a hardened sinner. Balaam said it, but he was a double-minded man. Achan said it, but he was a very doubtful penitent. Saul, the first king of Israel, said it, but he was an insincere man. Or if he was sincere, his sincerity was just for the moment. And you know who else said it? Judas said it. Judas said those very words. I have sinned. But there was never any change of mind or action. There were just words that rolled off of his tongue. Now, thankfully, there's other members of the I Have Sinned Club who are much more encouraging. Job said it, and he was a godly man. King David said it. Matter of fact, this man after God's own heart, King David said it a few times. But he meant it deeply from his heart. Nehemiah said it. He humbly counted himself among his sinful people. And you know who else said it? This is the one that sort of touches my heart the most. The prodigal son said it. When he returned back to his father, he said, I have sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a significant thing just to get somebody to say those words. To actually say it, I have sinned. But can we not say that it's an even greater thing to get them to mean it. And I would say, I, I don't want to be overdramatic or melodramatic. I'm not going to talk about, you know, a great crisis in the church. But surely you would say that as we look at the body of Christ as a whole in our culture, there's a significant problem with false repentance. People say the words, but there's no follow through into action. I trust as I say that, that that pricks somebody's heart, even as I say that. Let me make some observations for you about Pharaoh's false repentance. Number one, false repentance came from a hardened heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard. That's why he found it easy to repent in a false way. 
Not just what you think, but you think, oh, good, that's not me. Because my heart's really soft. And you just kind of, oh, yeah, good, it's nice and soft. Let me turn it around on you. Why don't you see how hard your heart is by seeing whether or not you repent falsely? Maybe you think your heart is soft, but the falseness of your repentance demonstrates that it's hard. And God's speaking to you about it right here, right now. We also see in Pharaoh that false repentance came from a concern only with the consequences of sin. Now, I think it's okay to repent in light of the consequences of sin. Isn't that where many of us find ourselves? Here's the problem. Repenting only because of the consequences of sin. If the only thing you're sorry about is that you got caught, if the only thing you're sorry about is that it blew up in your face and you've made your life a mess because of all the sin you've done, then, friends, being only sorry for the consequences is not enough. Can I tell you a way to measure whether or not you may be sorry for the sin itself? Does it strike your conscience? Does it touch your heart that your sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross? That your sin made him go to that cruel tree and for that sin, for that habit, for that indulgence, for whatever it is in your life, it made him yield up the ultimate sacrifice. It made him bear that crowns of thorns. It made him bear those, those, uh, those spikes through his hands and his feet. Now when we hear this, we go, oh, Jesus, I am sorry not only for the consequence of my sin for me, I am so sorry for the consequence of my sin for you. I'm sorry that I ever sinned, not merely that I got caught. Then there's a third aspect to Pharaoh's false repentance. Pharaoh shows us that false repentance hardens the heart even further. False repentance becomes easier each time you practice it. You see, it took Pharaoh, and I don't remember this exactly, so if I'm wrong in the detail, just I'm right approximately. It took Pharaoh to the fifth or sixth plague until he demonstrated his first false repentance. But then they came pretty quick after that. You see how that works? You you, you demonstrate false repentance once and nothing happens. No lightning strike from the sky. Well, I guess I got away with that. Must not be such a bad thing. And then you find it easier and easier to do the same thing again and again. Let me say this about false repentance. It has an end. It can't go on forever. Maybe today is a day that God is speaking to you about a false or shallow repentance that marks your life. All right, I'll end with this. And this really is the end. A great question that God asked Pharaoh. Look at it with me. Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. Here's the great question that God asked Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Isn't that a great question? Doesn't it kind of pierce you to your heart? How long? It's almost as if God is getting out the daytime or the calendar, the schedule. All right, let's set a date. You tell me, Pharaoh, what's it going to be? It's going to be six months from now? A year from now? 
Listen, do you, do you realize how foolish it would be to say, okay, God, six months from now, I'm going to humble myself before you? Because immediately it would come to you, why not now? And I'm going to do it ever. Why not do it now? Humble myself before God. Because the painful truth is this. There are some who, in response to this question, look at God square in the eye and they say, never. I will never humble myself before you. Ladies and gentlemen, today's the day. If you are ever going to humble yourself before God, do it now. Do it today. Put away any idol. Come to God in a sincere repentance. And let the glory and the power of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross be for you. Because let's think of it this way. He received every plague on the cross so that we would be spared. Can you picture that just in your mind? Plague upon plague coming upon the Son of God as he is on the cross, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can be rescued. That is our rescue. I'm going to wrap up with a prayer right now, but I just want to tell you something. In the midst of my prayer... I'm going to give an invitation for people who want to receive Jesus. And for people who want to repent and believe upon Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand in the midst of my prayer. So I just want you to be ready for that. Because I think this is a morning where God may be calling some people to salvation. Either you've never done it before, or you feel so far removed, so distant from that decision, that you feel that you must do it all over again. I'll give you that invitation in just a moment. But let's pray together right now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us enough to crush our idols. It's painful. For some strange reason, we hate seeing them go. But Lord, thank you for dealing with us on this point. And thank you for speaking to us about the issue of false repentance. I pray that you give some here this morning, Lord, the courage to humble themselves before you, to embrace you with a true repentance, and to yield their lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, you know we don't do this every Sunday, but, but Jesus, I feel impressed by you that now is the time we should. So move upon hearts as we invite them to come to you. Now, Fred, while heads are bowed and eyes are reverently closed in prayer before God, I'd just like to ask you if you'd like to make a a surrender to Jesus, to put your faith in him, to believe and repent, that you just stand up right where you are. This is just a demonstration of your faith in the Lord. God bless you, sir. And you back there, and you, ma'am. Others here around the room. God bless you, ma'am. Others here, I'm sure there's several others. God bless you back there to my right. I want you to understand that it's not the act of standing that gives you new life. No, it's the work of Jesus Christ that gives you new life. But your act of standing demonstrates, Lord, I believe, I repent, I want to come before you. Anybody else, if I could speak to you bluntly, I just want to say, don't let pride keep you away from What a terrible thing to allow pride to keep you from the kingdom of God. God bless you, man. Anybody else here right before I pray? Bless you. Now, for those of you who are standing, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to lead you in a prayer. So please listen carefully. 
Father, I pray for these who are standing. I pray for the the gentle, Lord, yet powerful work that you've done in their hearts and in the hearts of each of us. I ask God that you'd give them what they're asking for now, Lord. I pray that you'd give them the gift of a sincere repentance. I pray that you'd give them the gift of a steadfast faith. I pray, God, that you'd pour upon them the genuine ability and heart and desire to repent and believe that right now they'd put their trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did for them on the cross. Now, for those of you standing, I want to lead you in a prayer. It's a simple prayer, and I'm just going to invite you to repeat it after me. You don't have to say it loud, but you do have to say it. Just follow after me. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I repent of my sins. And I put my trust in you. I ask that you give me new life. And I ask that you forgive me my sins. And secure my place in heaven with you. Thank you, Lord, for your work in me. Now I lay it before you. Pray that you help me to live this new life that you give me. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.